The Last Supper and the Holy Shroud, a Holy Week meditation by Father Daniel Couture. In this series of three meditations, Father demonstrates how the Holy Shroud links the Last Supper, the burial of our crucified Lord, and the resurrection in an amazing way. May they help you know better our Lord in His Passion, and thereby deepen your love for Him. Part 3. The Shroud and the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. I'm Father Daniel Couture, and we have come to the third part of a three-part meditation on the Last Supper and the Holy Shroud. At the end of the second part, I mention the different stains that were on one end of the Holy Shroud, which, according to Dr. Jackson, who is the world specialist on the Shroud, could be, it's a hypothesis, but could be an indication of our Lord giving the piece of bread to Judas, because the drips are from the Jewish sauce, the charoset. I would like to add another detail proving the claim that Dr. Jackson makes of the link between the Shroud and the Last Supper. I will start with this, and then we will meditate on the institution of the Holy Eucharist itself. So, let us go to Good Friday for a moment, because that's where we have to start. We start with the end. In the state of mind of the Apostle, as well as the Jews, Jesus could not die. It, he said, I am life. He rose Lazarus from the dead just two weeks before. And others as well. Dead people that he wrote, brought back to life. So, will he actually die? That was the test of his mission. Or could the Jews get the Roman to actually kill him? So, during the whole day of Good Friday, the few disciples that were there, a lady, the Holy Woman, St. John, and... Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea and perhaps others followed. Our Lady knew he was going to die, but the others did not have the faith of Our Lady. And the Jews as well followed. Will he actually die? If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. We will believe in you. So, the passion unfolded and about three o'clock, Jesus died. He bowed his head, gave up the ghost. He died for real. The disciples and the others were, especially those who believe in our Lord, were shocked. He's dead. He cannot die. But he died. Then there's the earthquake. Soon after the earthquake, Joseph and Nicodemus, who were two members of the Sanhedrin, asked the centurion, can we have the body? And the centurion said, oh, you better go and ask Pilate. This is it's hot stuff. So you have... The two men walking the 700 meters between Calvary and the Antonianum, there's about 700 meters, Antonianum is the, the palace of Pilate, which is just north of the temple. So they come to Pilate, they have to go and get Pilate, Pilate comes in, or comes out, Pilate, can we have the body? Is he already dead? Pilate sends a soldier back to Calvary, 
to get the centurion who is in charge of the whole execution. Probably by horseback, so it goes a bit faster, but there's people in Jerusalem. It's crowded, so he cannot just gallop to the cavalry. Anyway, he goes to get the centurion. The centurion comes back. All this takes time. This is an important element in the whole story. Centurion tells Pilate, yes, Pilate, he's dead as dead can be. So then he tells the two men, okay, you can have the body. But by now, it's getting a bit late. What time? Four o'clock? Four thirty? I don't know, but see, things were going as fast as they could, but things did take time. So, and Joseph and Nicodemus, meanwhile, had thought of the practical things. Where are we going to bury him? And Joseph said, well, I got my sepulcher. I just got dug recently. We can do it. You have to understand also that just next to Calvary was a quarry. Golgotha was a little rock formation on the height just next to a quarry. They had not dug the Golgotha, but next to it, there was this opening of the hill and on one of the walls, it's 140 feet between Golgotha and the Holy Sepulchre. It's 140 feet. And so it was a straight facade. And so Joseph of Arimathea had dug his sepulchre there. He's a wealthy man. He probably owned part of it. I don't know. And if today you go to Jerusalem and you go to Calvary, you have to go down 18 steps to go to the floor, the floor bed of uh, where the, the, the sepulcher is a little bit further. Uh, Joseph and Nicodemus says, okay, now we got the sepulcher, but we need to wrap him into something. Today we would say, well, I need a coffin. But the Jews then, as they do today, and even the Muslim today also, a lot of people of the Middle East, they will simply wrap the corpse into a cloth that you buy, a burial cloth. You buy, and they buy little straps with it, strings, and you tie the body. It's a kit you buy, they come, they come with it. Yeah, but the shops are closed now. Now we're back to Good Friday. The shops are closed. Now, whether they had thought of it before or whether they thought of it then, According to Jackson, they took one of the cloths of the Last Supper. They said, we need a, a cloth which is 13, 14 feet, so we need to flip it over. Oh, we could take the one of the Last Supper. So, whether then or earlier, they went to the cynical, took one of the cloth, the one where Jesus had been, according to Jackson, and it would be just perfect length. So, they got to the sepulcher, so there was the like the, the funeral bed dug in the rock, about six, seven feet. It's not very big, okay? seven feet. So they put one layer of the shroud, they put the body, and then they flip the other layer over it, and then have to tie it. But since this was not a burial cloth, they didn't have the strings to tie it with. So they said, what are we going to tie it with? And one of them Practical men, it's clear from the story, said, oh, I think the only thing we, have to, we can do is cut a strip of the cloth. And that is what we have on the top of the shroud. Jackson has himself in studio, in his studio, has reconstructed the way Jesus was buried. He says, that piece of cloth 
which we see on top of the shroud, which nobody, no expert of the holy shroud have been able to explain. That piece of cloth makes a lot of sense if right there in the sepulcher, somebody just took a knife and cut it, and when you flip it over, you tie the feet, go around the legs, because Jackson, with the three-dimension properties of the shroud, he can prove that the legs were tied. Something was holding the legs. He goes around the legs and goes around the chest and then makes a knot underneath the chin. And it's perfect. The length is perfect. And that's how they left our Lord on Good Friday. On Easter Sunday, when the apostles came, John, who had been there Good Friday, saw exact the shroud tied with that strip, with the knots, but no body inside. He saw and he believed. Later on, they obviously recovered the shroud and some holy women sewed it back exactly thread by thread. Jackson has proven it. With a backlit image, we can see the threads of the weaving of the shroud and he says, these ladies were inspired but they put the shroud, that strip, exactly where they had cut it. Separately, total separate data that we have is one lady who is an expert in ancient textile has examined the seam and he said that's first century seam work. So the theories match and uh, nobody has refuted Jackson's hypothesis. But that means, that confirms that this tablecloth of the Last Supper was used for the burial of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's incredible. Incredible. But there's scientific evidence. One can deny this, but even the, the great historian like Jan Wilson, who wrote on the history of the Shroud, they say, well, we don't know why this piece was cut and sewn back exactly where it was. Let us continue our meditation, but this will help us because you will see that the Shroud is a witness, a silent witness of the Last Supper, of the Passion of our Lord on Good Friday, the burial, and of the Resurrection. It's a witness that was present at these three events and that has recorded these three events. So let's continue our meditation. At the end of the second part, we meditated on the betrayal, the announcement of the betrayal. Judas has left. And now, our Lord can speak freely. And we have these, the famous discourse after the Last Supper, from chapter 13, towards the middle of 13, until the end of chapter 17 of St. John. St. John does not speak of the institution, but according to some exegetes, some biblical expert, chapter 15 of St. John could have been said right after the institution, right after the communion, because our Lord speaks of the, the allegory of the vine. I'm the vine, you are the branches. My father is the, the husbandman, which is very suitable as a thanksgiving meditation. Abide in me and I in you and abide in my love. So, Judas is gone. And 
Now our Lord can open his heart and give to the apostle that treasure which he had, has been thinking of a long time. Because a year ago was the multiplication of the loaves in Capernaum. Three years ago was the miracle of Cana, where he changed water into wine, which was the type of miracle that he was now about to do. But 33 years ago, he was born in a cave, and he was wrapped, and he was laid into what? A manger. A manger is for the animals, or the plate is for us. So, the moment he was born, he was telling us silently in a crib of Christmas, eat me, eat me. And that's a theme that, uh, like a thread going through all his life to this moment. When he spoke in parables, he prepared the apostles to believe in him. He was building the faith of the apostles. They got to learn that when Jesus spoke words which they did not understand, later on he would explain it to them, explain them, these words to them. So at night they would find himself there and say, my Lord, what, what does that mean, that story that the, the kingdom of God is like a woman making bread and so, or a net thrown into the, the lake, just catching different kinds of fish. What does that have to do with, with God? But all the, our Lord was preparing them to believe what I say. That's faith. Even if you don't understand that, because the catechism says we have to believe in God and there are many mysteries in our religion, which we cannot fully understand. But we believe on the authority of God speaking. God we cannot deceive nor be deceived. And a year ago, in Capernaum, our Lord had spoken about eating him, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and you will have life. And as the people were leaving the synagogue of Capernaum, our Lord insisted, we can visualize it, and unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will not have life in you. Our Lord knew. And that was the, one of the greatest tests of faith for the apostles. Because our Lord says, so are you going to leave me as well? And Peter said, well, my Lord, you have the words of life. Where shall we go? You have the words of life. Good. But you see, that was a year before the Last Supper. But now we've come to the moment where the miracle will take place. And all these events that I've just mentioned, Capernaum, Cana, Bethlehem, all these words, now they're going to be fulfilled. Now the reality will take place in front of their eyes. We're at the end of the meal. And there's still some unleavened bread on the table. So Jesus take some of the unleavened bread in his sacred and venerable hands. He raises his eyes to heaven. There was a custom he did a lot. Looking at his father, my father, the time has come. Now. Now is the hour. The hour of grace. The hour of salvation. The hour of redemption. Did he bless it like the priest does at Mass? The Council of Trent says the blessing that we do just before the consecration is from apostolic times because it's found everywhere. If it is from apostolic times, could the apostles have added of their own initiative? Or did they just reproduce what Jesus did? Could be. 
I would say it's a question of an opinion here. But it's from apostolic time. The priest must do it before he consecrates. So, our Lord has taken this unleavened bread in his hands. And I would like you to meditate, because you know the story, but I want you to meditate from inside Jesus. What was he thinking when he took that bread and he was about to say the words of the consecration? We don't often think about that. We, we look at it from our side. But I would like you to look at it from his side, with a capital H, his side. So Jesus said, this is my body. Of course, he saw his body hanging on the cross less than 24 hours later, about 20, 18 hours later. He saw his body, but I want you to understand something deeper. Man does not have power over time. We have power over space. They had invented telephones, cell phones. You can call Japan if you want. You can call South America, pick up a phone, dial your friend number. And Man has overcome space to a certain extent and to a great extent here on, on the earth. But we have never overcome time. They've made movies about that, fiction movies, time machine, or where you could invent a machine where you can go back in time or go into the future. There's lots of movies about these things. But that machine exists because God has made it. It's called the mass. It's the only one that exists through times. So, first thing, keep that in mind. And second thing, you know what radio is. Radio, there's a man in a studio speaking to a microphone, and you're in your car, you switch on the radio, you're in your home, switch on the radio, you're listening to the news or a hockey game or, or something. So this is only a speaker. But there's a man in a studio somewhere speaking into a microphone. You don't see the man, but you just know. It's not the machine that speaks, it's the machine just relays the voice. So, with these two images, the this time machine and the... Uh, wireless speakers. Let's apply this to the Mass. So Jesus is, is saying these words, this is my body. He sees. So again, our point of view is inside the Sacred Heart, inside his mind. He sees priests until the end of the world who are like mouthpieces, uh, speakers. Jesus is at the microphone, so to speak, and each priest saying Mass. Our Lord can see every single Mass until the end of the world. He can see the priest bending down on the host and pronouncing these words. But remember, each priest says, this is my body. But it's not the body of the priest. When the priest speaks, he's merely an instrument. It's Jesus using this man using not just the hand of the man, like a mother teaching a child to draw on a piece of paper or helping a child to play piano. But here, our Lord is going to use the body of the priest. He's going to use his eyes, his hands, his mouth. He's going to use his mind, his will, as you will use a pen. Jesus speaks through the priest because the priest 
It's like an, like a wave. Jesus says, this is my body. And that wave, that sound goes through times, through space, all over the world, whenever the priest says mass, and through time. And so all the masses are one because Jesus says the word. And so that unites in an extraordinary way. It unites all the masses with the Last Supper. And so our Lord sees all the priests saying, he sees the priests in, whether in St. Peter's Square and the Pope saying Mass for a million people or the Eucharistic Congress in Dublin in 1932 where they had a million people. Our Lord saw the priest in the little country parishes. He sees the priest in a monastery at 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock in the morning saying Mass. He sees the priest in an igloo in the North Pole on the ships in the Sahara Desert like Saint-Charles de Foucault. He sees, he sees every priest and our Lord brings that consecrating word that he says, he brings that word everywhere at all times. And so that consecration becomes really, we can say, it's really the sacrifice of the church. You can go to Mass, next time you go to Mass, when you see the priest bending and saying the words and you hear the bell, you can think Padre Pio saying Mass. I'm, I'm following Padre Pio's Mass. St. John Bosco, St. Francis Xavier, St. John de Brebeuf. You can attend Mass of St. Augustine. You can, like you see in so many of these big uh, TV shops, you see a hundred TVs there, all these screens. You can see all the priests saying Mass at different places at different times. And you can say, I'm attending all these priests' Mass together. Because that is the Mass that Jesus is saying. That's the Mass. It's extraordinary. It changes how you assist that Mass. And then we can go one step further. Jesus sees, when he says, this is my body, he sees every single communion. You have to be a priest to, I would say, to understand an extra layer of the mercy of God in Holy Communion. But our Lord saw the priests all over the world, in the history, again, till the end of the world, priests saying Mass and giving communion thousands and millions of communions in all the circumstances, in the churches, in the hospital, bringing communion to the dying, on the battlefield, on the battlefield, priests walking around and say, First World War, there's some extraordinary stories of, of chaplains going around carrying a whole ciborium full of, of hosts going around and crawling on coming out of the trenches, crawling on the, the bloody fields and, and trying to see the soldiers that were still alive and giving the absolution and if they could even give them communion. There's one story I read in a book. I can't remember which book it is, but I didn't invent it. A story where this priest was running out of hosts. He had just given out his last host, but the bombing was continuing. And, and he said, my God, I need, I need some... I need to give them communion. I need, they need a viatic. They need you. So, and he looked around and it's all muddy. I don't know if it was raining. It had rain. It was mud and blood and debris. It was, it was a war. It was, was, was awful. And the priest says, where can I say mass? And he said, there's no, absolutely not a 
plank dry that I can say mass. And then he had an idea. He says, it's not very liturgical, but my God, you want to visit these dying soldiers, don't you? Okay, well, so he found a quiet spot and he leaned back and he put the corporal on his chest and he used his own chest as an altar. Imagine our Lord seeing that thousands of years in advance, seeing the priest, this desire. Many of you are married. If you know that your child is dying from a car accident in a hospital somewhere, and you know that, I mean, the clock is driven, he will die in an hour or two, will you not rush to go to the hospital to try to be at his bedside when he's dying? Would a mother not you know, do everything to save the life of her child, to be there, to maybe to hold a baby in her arms when he will die. Well, you have to be a parent to understand the heart of God, as to understand better the heart of God. Well, transpose that. Our Lord is dying to be with his dying children. And that's the Holy Eucharist. That's the communion. I had one, one case in Ireland where one of our very good faithful was dying. He had just had a heart attack and he was still alive and we were visiting him in, in hospital in Dublin. And that Sunday, the priest said Mass in our church in South Dublin, went to the hospital on his way to Belfast to say Mass in our chapel in Belfast. And he stopped to see Morris in a hospital and he was in intensive care. He, was, he had almost died a number of times. He was still conscious and uh, so Father gave him communion and Father said, well, goodbye and see you in heaven if I don't see you before. And so Father left. The nurse came and Morris was saying his Thanksgiving prayers. So the nurse respectfully stayed back. She came back five minutes later. Morris, the head was on the pillow. Morris had died. He died in his Thanksgiving. Isn't that more beautiful? Would you not like to be there holding your, your child when he's dying? So... That's the Holy Communion. It's extraordinary. To be there, to bring our Lord, to be the, I'd say, the, the donkey of the king, bringing the king next to the dying soldier, the dying mother, the dying child. That's what our Lord was thinking. And he could see every single communion in the history. Because communion is, we receive him, but... He says, abide in me. He receives us when we go to communion. We must not forget that. And then he took the chalice that was there. And he pronounced the words of the consecration, the second consecration. Second consecration, this is the chalice of my blood that will be shed for you and for many. Of course, he sees, yes, I want to shed my blood for you. This is the New Testament. The blood of the New and Eternal Testament. And uh, mystery of faith. Oh, indeed, mystery of faith. And each time you, you do this, do this in commemoration of me. Hoc facite. By saying these words, our Lord was ordaining the apostles. So that's the word. I mean, that's the consecration of the apostles. They became priests when Jesus says, Hoc facite. Do this. So, therefore, I give you the power to do this. He ordained them there. So our Lord saw, saw his blood we mentioned in the first part the blood of the Paschal Lamb. It's there in the Old Testament. Moses took the blood of a cow, put it in a bucket, and went around sprinkling everything with the blood of the cow. 
St. Paul speaks about this in the Epistle to the Hebrews, you know. And why was that blood so precious? Not because it was the blood of a cow, you can do it at home and it will not do anything, but because it was the sign of the blood of Christ, which come 1,500 years later. It was a symbol, it was a sign, but now the figure is there, the shadow is gone, the light is there, the reality is there. So our Lord said, this is the chalice of my blood. Why is there such an insistence on the blood in sacred scripture and in the liturgy? Because blood, we would say today, blood is like liquid love. Blood comes from the heart. It's the pump that pumps the blood. The heart pumps the blood all over the body, in and out, moving all the time. That heart. And so the blood, when Jesus says, drink my blood, it means drink my love. Do you realize how much I love you? Take my love into you. Absorb it. Realize it. A St. Paul understood it when he said, you know, he, I was a sinner. I was the enemy of God. I persecuted a Christian and he died for me. Wow. What can separate us from the love of Christ? I mean, that's extraordinary. So, the blood. So Jesus saw his blood and he saw the sacraments of blood. The first part we saw the Mass, the Holy Eucharist. Now he saw baptism. He saw confession. He saw the missionaries going around all over the world and, and baptizing, baptizing. Sometimes whole villages, whole countries. In the story of St. Francis Xavier, in one of his letters to St. Ignatius, letters which he himself wrote always kneeling down to his father, the general, he says, Father Ignatius, I have great pain writing this letter. My arm is so sore. Last month, he says, last month, I baptized about 30,000 people in one month. Don't you think our Lord was, was vibrating when he pronounced these words and he saw what the priests, what his missionaries, what the doctors and nurses would do because when they have to baptize in hospitals or the emergency situation, like another here we have Antoine Daniel, Anthony Daniel, one of our Canadian martyrs, who, when the Iroquois surrounded the village there in the, near Midland, and uh, they start throwing arrows to burn the village and to kill everybody. There were some, some of the Hurons, catechumens, who were not yet baptized. Father, Father, I'm not baptized yet. Father. And Father took some water and started going around baptizing all of them in the different huts. And he was killed as he was doing this. Think of our Lord looking at this. He will do this for me. Yes, go on, go on. And then confession. Ego te absolvo. Our Lord could see the priest, the priest hearing confession all over the world. Priest going to hear confession, pouring the precious blood on the souls. And the cues, the lines for confession, they were not miles long. They were centuries long. These Padre Pios and these Curia of ours and Saint Leopoldo as well and so many saints, all these missionaries, the Passionists, the Lazarus, the Redemptorists, hearing confessions for, for months and years, just hearing confession, spending your whole life in a frozen church, hearing the dirt that every sin man can commit and just pouring the precious blood. On the battlefield as well, same thing. Same thing. Father Willie Doyle, a famous Irish chaplain in the First World War, 
he, after a battle, after these, these awful, awful battle with gas attacks and all these things, and the prisoners, the soldiers were brought back into the trench, and their bloody face, the face was blown up. I remember one case where the soldier could still speak, Father, Father, get Father, get Father, get Father. And Father came, it's me, I'm here, I'm here. The man had no more eyes, whatever, he could barely, could not see anything. I'm here, and okay, okay I go to Absolve, I give absolution. And the man just like died in the arms of the priest. Look at this from our Lord. Oh yes, let's go and go my sons, go into the whole world and bring my blood to all these souls. They'll go to hell without it. And they go to heaven with it. That's the Mass. That's beautiful. And so, to conclude, we need to meditate on this. But you see, with the Holy Shroud, we have the link between the Last Supper, and the what was Jesus thinking when he instituted the Holy Eucharist? We have Good Friday, because we have the bloodstain on, on the shroud came on Good Friday. Just the bloodstain, not the rest of the body. It's proven scientifically. And then, on Easter Sunday, when the body turned into light and dematerializes, and there was this flash of the resurrection, when the, when the cloth, the upper layer, collapsed on the lower layer, then our Lord imprinted on the shroud signs of the light and the heat of the resurrection. These are the two characteristics the, uh, the American team concluded in 1978. We don't know what made the image except light and heat. So that cloth that you're looking at, that cloth has with the stains of the Jewish sauce, with the strip above that is also a pretty strong argument, has an argument that this was one of the cloths of the Last Supper. It has the blood of Good Friday and it has the yellowing of the threads the size of a hair. Only the surface has been yellowed by the flash of, of Easter. So there's a mark of Easter. Extraordinary witness that tells us that it is the same sacrifice. The Last Supper was a sacrifice and it is that sacrifice that was consummated on Calvary and the proof that it was accepted by God was that resurrection. Because if Christ is not risen from the dead, our faith is vain, but he is risen and we have a sign of that resurrection right there on the Holy Shroud. So meditate on some of these aspects. Take time. It's, it's so beautiful. And it will change as well. It will change the way you attend Mass. And when you see the priest kissing the altar, he kisses the cloth, which is a symbol of the Holy Shroud. And so I hope this will help you to appreciate the gift of God. If thou didst know the gift of God, the Mass is certainly the gift of God and the sacred priesthood as well. Thank you very much. God bless. This presentation has been brought to you by the Fatima Center. Copyright 2021. All rights reserved. For more resources regarding the Catholic faith and the message of Fatima, and to support this vital apostolate with a donation, please visit our website, www.fatima.org, or call us 
at 1-800-363-8160. So many souls need to hear these spiritual truths. In Christian charity, please share them with others. And may God reward you. I salute thee, I adore thee, and I love thee. O adorable face of Jesus, my beloved, noble seal of the divinity, outraging you by blasphemers, I offer thee, through the heart of thy blessed mother, the worship of all the angels and saints, most humbly beseeching thee to repair and renew in me and in all men thy image disfigured by sin. Amen.